Welcome back, Cramaholics. It's your host, Holly, and today's case is one that is an unsolved case and deserves justice. This case was suggested in our private Facebook group by Shelby Pratt. So thank you so much to Shelby for suggesting this case. It is one that I personally have never heard of, and those are always my favorite to search because I feel that if I haven't heard of it, there's likely others who haven't either. So without further ado, let's dive in. Andrew Sadek was born on November 22, 1993 in a fairly small town called Valley City in North Dakota. Shortly after he was born, his parents Tammy and John Sadek relocated to a town called Rogers, and this is where he grew up on a cattle farm. And by the age of 11, Andrew was in charge of his own cattle herd. He was an extremely hard worker, and he was always there to help his family with whatever they needed to keep their cattle farm going, and he worked side-by-side with his dad and his older brother. Unfortunately, in 2005, the Sadek family experienced their first tragedy when Andrew's older brother, Nicholas, was killed when his car was struck by a train at an unmarked railroad crossing. This obviously was very hard for Andrew because he was close to his brother, but But despite all that, Andrew graduated high school from Valley City High School. Now, he was a pretty quiet kid who kept to himself, and he really wasn't big into partying with other kids. And I'm going to assume that's because he knew he had a lot of responsibilities to take care of for his family on their cattle farm. After graduating high school, Andrew decided to follow his dreams of becoming an electrician and enrolled in college at North Dakota State College of Science in 2012, which this was over 130 miles from home. Despite that distance and the demanding course load, Andrew made sure to stay in touch with his family and came home to the farm usually every weekend his first year of college. He lived on campus in the dorms, and he had a roommate named Drew. Now, he and Drew were extremely close, and they had a third friend named Eric who also ran around with them. Andrew seemed to be living the average college life and working hard in classes. By his third year of college, he still was frequently making those trips home, including the trip on the weekend of April 25th and April 26th of 2014. It was a normal weekend trip home. Andrew came home to help his dad with the cattle. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. He didn't seem upset. He didn't seem stressed or anything of that kind of nature. And he was truly just his normal, happy self. He left to head back to campus around 2 p.m. on Sunday and said he had a date that night. Around 10 p.m., he spoke on the phone with his mother where she made sure he arrived back at campus safely and she let him know that he also needed to watch his data limit on his phone because they were nearing their monthly limit. So again, normal mother-son talk, and he was totally normal, nothing off. Unfortunately, this would be the last time that Andrew would have contact with his mother. On April 30th, Andrew goes out with his buddies Drew and Eric that night after a day full of classes. After hanging out, the guys take it back to Andrew and Drew's dorm room where they watched a movie and played video games. When midnight rolled around, the guys called it a night and headed for bed. 
The following morning when Drew wakes up, he finds that Andrew's bed was empty and he wasn't there. Which Drew honestly didn't think anything of this at this point. He figured Andrew had gone out to meet up with a girl or run some errands. After two days, though, of not seeing him in the dorm, nor did he show up for any of his classes, they began feeling like something wasn't right. It wasn't like Andrew to miss that many classes, so they decided to go ahead and contact campus police and report him as missing which the campus police notified Andrew's family that he was missing, which his mom was kind of taken back by it. She told them there's no way he's missing. He's at college. He lives in the dorms. What do you mean he's missing? Is his car there? Which his car was there. So she told him that he had to have been somewhere. His parents began calling his phone repeatedly, and all of those calls would go directly to voicemail. The campus police said that maybe Andrew was out partying somewhere and would surface at some point, which his parents knew that Andrew just wasn't really like that. Not to mention, when he would go out, he would always have Drew and Eric with him. Those were his closest buddies, and they all practically went everywhere together. When police obtained the security footage from the dorms, they spotted Andrew leaving his dorm at 2 a.m., he was wearing jeans and his favorite Tampa Bay Buccaneers hoodie with the hood pulled over his head. He could also be seen wearing a backpack. So where was Andrew going in the middle of the night? His roommate Drew, the person who would most likely know, had zero ideas as well as his parents and authorities. Two days after Andrew is reported missing, the Richland County Sheriff's Office begins searching for Andrew. But to his family's annoyance, they were refusing outside searchers to come and help search for him. Andrew's family was able to round up over 30 farmers with their ATVs to come out and help search land for Andrew. But they were told not to come and help. Which to me, that's a little frustrating considering that Andrew remained missing for nearly two months. Andrew's parents go public and do a press conference pleading for Andrew to return home. Immediately after the press conference ends, his parents were approached by the police and they were handed a warrant for Andrew's arrest, which this was a complete and utter shock to his parents. Why would they be issuing arrest for Andrew? What was this about? The warrant was for drug charges. They were shocked to have learned that Andrew had been in some trouble for selling drugs. Andrew's family was not only in shock over the fact that their son was missing, but now they're smacked with this warrant, which was a complete and utter gut punch to them. Andrew just wasn't like that. He has never been in trouble with the law before for anything. His parents learned that Andrew not only had been in trouble for selling drugs, but he was actually working as a confidential informant for the same sheriff's department that was currently searching for him. And he had been working as a CI for five months. Apparently in 2013, Andrew began selling marijuana. Now in the state of North Dakota at the time, selling marijuana, no matter the amount on a college campus was considered a class A felony and could be a penalty of 10 to 20 years in prison per charge and then a hefty fine on top of that. When I looked up the current laws in North Dakota, I found that selling marijuana within a thousand feet of a school is now considered a class B felony. But at that time, Andrew was looking at potentially a huge prison sentence. 
Andrew would meet buyers in a campus parking lot, and unknown to him, he sold to a CI himself several times before being charged. Now, there was a narcotics task force, and they were called the Southeast Multi-County Agency Narcotics Task Force, or also known as SEMCA. Their job was to approach individuals who were dealing drugs and pretty much offer them a deal. You either go through with the legal proceedings and potentially go to prison and have fines, or you work with them as a confidential informant for a time and pretty much your charges would either be reduced or dropped completely. When individuals would choose to work as a CI, they would agree to wear a wire and do various different drug transactions with known drug dealers out there. They were required to do this for a set number of purchases all the while staying in constant communication with law enforcement, coordinating their next purchases and from whom. After some time would pass, law enforcement would then approach the seller so that the CI's identity would be protected, and then pretty much they would offer them the same type of gig. Andrew wasn't one who sold a large amount of drugs before he got caught. He had sold twice to a CI, the first being only an eighth of an ounce of marijuana for $60. He then met with the same CI again and sold a gram for $20. So in total, he sold $80 worth of weed to a CI and then was approached on November 21st, 2013. They showed up to his dorm room, letting him know that they had reason to believe that he had been selling drugs on campus and asked to search his room, which Andrew consented to. After searching his room, they found a grinder that had marijuana residue inside it, and Andrew admitted that it was his, and they told him to come down to the sheriff's department the following day to discuss things. The following day, November 22nd, 2013, had actually been his 20th birthday, and he started his 20th birthday inside a police station. He arrived and was interviewed by Richland County deputy named Jason Weber. Now, I watched the full interrogation on YouTube. It's about 25 minutes long, and I will have it linked in the description of this episode so you can watch it yourself if you choose to do so. But pretty much in the video, Andrew walks into the interrogation room, sits down with Deputy Weber, and Deputy Weber begins by saying that Andrew has expressed interest in helping himself out. He lays out that Andrew is facing two Class A felony charges as well as a misdemeanor charge, which ultimately could be 20 years in prison and a $40,000 fine. He explains to him that he probably wouldn't get the full 20 years, but he would most likely get some prison time. He begins asking him details about other individuals who he knows that buys and sells drugs on campus. Andrew lists off a few individuals he knows that sells, including a guy in Fargo, North Dakota. Deputy Weber explains to Andrew that since he has two felonies looming overhead, he has to do deals with at least three or four individuals, and he has to do two deals per individual for his agreement with the sheriff's office. Then they go over a bunch of paperwork, and Andrew is asked to agree verbally and then sign the forms. One of the things Andrew has to agree to is that he will not expose to anyone that he is working as a confidential informant. The deputy also explains to Andrew that he is to keep in constant communication and constant contact with him. 
If he does not continue to communicate with him, he will assume that Andrew no longer wants to work together and then will issue a warrant for his arrest, which Andrew agrees to. Then the deputy begins discussing that there is a possibility that Andrew might have to come back into court someday and testify as a state's witness against someone. You can see Andrew physically get uncomfortable and he hesitates to agree to this. The deputy picks up on this and explains that this is really, really unlikely and that over the years that he's been doing this, he's never seen it happen and that usually individuals take a plea deal or become informants themselves. Andrew pretty much asks him for reassurance that the individuals he rats out aren't going to know it's him. And Deputy Weber explains to him that when they get notification about these deals, they wait months before they go and make an arrest. So Andrew agrees and signs and dates the form. Their meeting wraps up and before leaving, Andrew agrees to begin working on lining up some deals. Now, all of this came as a complete shock to his family, especially since he never even mentioned to his parents that he had been doing this deal with the sheriff's office. Andrew's father states in an investigation discovery show that he just had a bad feeling that something involving the CI work went bad, and that is why his son went missing. So Andrew begins working as an informant and begins making these purchases. His first one was not long after his agreement with Deputy Weber. He purchased an eighth of an ounce for $60 in a campus parking lot. Then again, he did another purchase in December from the same individual, again in the same parking lot. His third purchase was from someone he wasn't really familiar with and he had never dealt with them before. And this was said to have happened in January. It is rumored, though I couldn't find any hard facts on this, that it was shortly after this deal in January that Andrew kind of pulled back from being in contact with Deputy Weber. Again, I couldn't find anything solid in the media about this. It's just what I had seen circulating on YouTube when researching this case. But either way, Andrew still had one deal left to do before his obligations to the sheriff's department was up. Tammy and John Sadek waited and waited for word from their son, and as the days ticked by, they knew for sure he didn't just run off to hide from his problems. Nearly two months after Andrew had gone missing, Tammy received a phone call that she had been waiting for, but also dreading. Andrew had been found with a single gunshot wound to the head. The police discovered Andrew's body by accident. They were running a routine training exercise in the Red River doing dives, which this was not far from his dorm. But the blow that his family did not expect was what the police told them next. Andrew Sadek's family was told by the police that they believed that Andrew committed suicide because he had the bullet wound to his head. And you guys, I cannot even begin to tell you the amount of anger I feel at this whole entire investigation. Nowhere near the area where Andrew was found did they recover a gun, which was a 22 caliber gun. Not only that, but Andrew was found inside the river. His body had not been floating in the water and he wasn't found in a shallow pool of water downriver. No. Andrew was found with his backpack over his shoulders and tied around his body filled with heavy rocks to weigh him down 
to the bottom of the river. So you're telling me that the investigators believed that this young man had a gun, strapped his body down with rocks to weigh him down, shot himself in the head, figured out some way to hide the gun, and then make sure he sank to the bottom of the river. There is just no damn way. No way. One reason that the police are saying that it is a suicide is because Andrew's parents were missing a handgun, which was a 22 caliber handgun. So the police are trying to say that Andrew took this gun from his parents to kill himself. And his parents believe, which I wholeheartedly agree with, that Andrew took this gun for self-defense. I think, and of course this is just my opinion, that something happened that made Andrew uneasy and he began worrying and questioning his own safety doing this CI work. Not only that, but Andrew's parents talk about how Andrew knew how incredibly hard it was for them to deal with the loss of his brother. His mom is adamant that there is no way that Andrew would kill himself over drug charges, over $80 of marijuana at that, and put her through the heartache of loss again. That was just not like her son. Not only that, but the clothing that Andrew was wearing when he was recovered from the river wasn't clothing he was seen wearing when he left his dorm on that surveillance footage. And what is more mind-boggling is that the jacket he was wearing wasn't one that his family or his friends even recognized as his at all. The Sadek family had hoped that the autopsy would come back saying more about the manner of death, but after two months of waiting for that report to come back, they were disappointed to learn that the manner of death was ruled as undetermined. Due to Andrew having gone missing May 1st and his body being recovered June 27th in the river, a lot of decomposition had taken place and it was really hard for them to determine much of anything other than he sustained a gunshot wound to the head. Another thing that is interesting to note here is that when Andrew's family first obtained his car from the dorm parking lot shortly after he went missing, they found that inside the trunk, the mat was soaking wet. When they lifted the mat up to check under where the spare tire would be, they found that there was a significant amount of water inside. They believed that somebody had killed Andrew, placed him inside his own trunk of his own car, drove out to the river and dumped him, only then to return his car back to campus, which that does kind of sound a little bit extreme for someone to take those measures, but there had been a witness that came forward to Tammy saying that they saw some interesting activity around the river that night. Someone reported that they saw three individuals near the river in the middle of the night hosing off a trunk of a car that matched Andrew's car's description. When authorities looked into the cameras in the parking lot to see who had been driving Andrew's car, they found that the cameras had malfunctioned that night and didn't record anything. Still, police were adamant that Andrew had killed himself. The Sadex weren't going down without a fight. On the two-year anniversary of the discovery of Andrew's body, Tammy and John Sadek filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the Richland County and Officer Jason Weber. They said that Andrew was being bullied and coerced into doing the CI work. Not only did they file a lawsuit against the county and Officer Weber, but they began rallying for change in their state. 
they were demanding for better oversight of the confidential informant program in North Dakota. And on April 24th, 2017, Governor Doug Burgum signs House Bill 1221 into law, which is now known as Andrews Law. A part of Andrew's law is that confidential informants will be made aware of the dangers that could potentially happen during their work. Andrew's law also allows individuals to consult with an attorney before signing anything to work as a CI. When Governor Doug Burgum signed this bill into law, both Tammy and John sat beside him as he made Andrew's law official. In May of 2019, the wrongful death suit against Officer Weber was dismissed and the SADEX appealed to the North Dakota Supreme Court. In September of 2020, the Supreme Court upholds the dismissal of the wrongful death lawsuit. So that is pretty much all of the details kind of surrounding this case that I have, and I wanted to take some time to discuss some theories. Obviously, from the direction of this episode, we know that there are two theories that people think happened to Andrew, suicide and murder. People that lean towards thinking it's a suicide talk about the fact that Andrew seemed to have been pulling away from doing this work. Was he getting burnt out on running these deals for police and decided that the idea of prison was too much to handle and he was so stressed out that he took his own life? My problem with this theory is Andrew only had one more deal to do before his obligation was over. You would think that he would just get it done and out of the way and be done with the whole ordeal. People who believe this theory theorize that the reason for Andrew's final trip home before he went missing was his way to say goodbye and to steal that gun to use on himself later. Again, my problem with this is that weekend when Andrew went home, his mom wasn't even home. She was gone on a girl's trip with some girlfriends and it was just he and his dad moving cattle from one pasture to the next. I just cannot swallow this theory at all. Not only for the reasons I've said already about being practically done with the police, but for the fact that I don't think he would do that to his family. They had already lost one child. He was their remaining child who everything was going to be left for. He had a whole entire farm left to him. He had all of his parents' estate left to him. I just cannot fathom that he would kill himself when he has everything lined up for his future. Not only that, but he was looking for jobs in the North Dakota area of Rogers, trying to find jobs as an electrician for once he graduated. I don't think you would line those things up if you planned on killing yourself. This is just a theory that I literally cannot accept. Obviously, the next theory is murder. And in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, it's not fact. Given the facts that Andrew was weighted down with his own backpack filled with rocks, I'm going to say he was murdered. Andrew had the backpack over his shoulders and tied around him. I just don't see how he could have decided to kill himself, get in the river, weigh himself down with a backpack filled of rocks, shoot himself in the head, and somehow the gun just never be recovered. Not only that, but Andrew was in a jacket that nobody in his life could recognize. And one thing I did forget to mention earlier was his wallet was never found on him or in his dorm room. So where is it? 
Now, some could say that perhaps the gun had washed downriver and has yet to be recovered. And while this is absolutely a possibility, there has been YouTubers who do what is called magnet fishing, which pretty much they throw a huge magnet into rivers and lakes and pretty much fish for anything metal. And these magnet fishers who go by Kinsler Bros on YouTube actually went to the river and was fishing up and down the river trying to recover evidence in this case. And Andrew's mother actually had been a part of the video on YouTube. And I will have that video linked in the description of this episode so you can check it out and see what they do. But unfortunately, despite their efforts, nothing was found in connection to this case. Not only that, but the water inside of Andrew's car gets me as well. There had been several gallons inside the well where the spare tire goes. How come? I just feel like there is way too many unanswered questions for the police to solidly say that this was a suicide. And though I understand that due to body decomposition, it was hard for the medical examiner to determine the cause of death, I just can't see how someone could ignore all of these interesting pieces of evidence and still say they believe it's a suicide. In my opinion, they were trying to sweep it under the rug so that their little task force wouldn't be put under scrutiny on the way in which they run things. But again, that's just my opinion. And typically in our episodes, as you guys know, if you've been following us for a while, we usually do not interject our opinions and we save that for our Facebook group. However, I feel like I know a lot of our followers will feel the same way as I and I just couldn't not say it on this episode. You guys, if you aren't in our private Facebook group, make sure you join because I do really want to hear your thoughts and theories on this case. You can find the group by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. Make sure you also find us on both Instagram and TikTok at crimeaholics.podcast and give us a follow. If you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you're notified every single time a new episode goes live. And don't forget to make sure you leave a five-star review. Reviews help us grow our audience and reach new people. If you have a case suggestion, there is a link in the description of this episode that you can submit a form for us to check out. Crimeaholics, that's all for now. Until next time, be aware and take care. (music) 